Good morning, church. Those gathered here this morning uh, in person and those joining us online, it is good to be together. And Beverly, thank you for reading James chapter 4. We're going to be looking at that uh, chapter um, uh, and um, we'll see what the Lord has to say to us. We are a Christian church, right? Yeah, okay. Just wanted to make sure we're all in agreement on that. And as a Christian church, uh, we're supposed to be uh, in unity, right? Yeah, one accord. Yep, yep. Fully agreeing with each other's opinions on every matter, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, let's test this last one here. <laughs> yeah, I've got a four-question unity quiz. Here we go. I wrote this specifically for those who don't like to raise your hand. Here we go. Raise your hand. If you believe that everyone here has the correct political view. Number two. Show your hand if you believe that everyone here agrees on how and when Jesus will return. Come on, we've taught on this. Jeez, all right. Uh, how about number three? I have not seen a single hand. Um, all right, hey, put up your hand if you think that fall is the best season of the year. Uh, there's a couple hands. Uh, wait, we're a Christian church. We're all supposed to be in agreement. And so, all right. Well, thankfully, um, we are a very loving, a very patient, and a very compassionate church. We show that to each other even when we don't agree with one another's opinions. Is that true? Eh, mostly. <laughs> okay. No hands there. Fortunately, um, I'm going to give, I said it's a four-question quiz. I've only asked you three. So you get one more chance. And if you get this one right, uh, you're actually going to pass the quiz. So here you go. Yeah, I threw it on a curve. Ready? All right. Raise your hand if you think Christians don't always be behave the way the Bible says they should. <sighs> We're finally united. <laughs> yeah. So congratulations, you passed the quiz, but really, um, is this good that we can agree that Christians don't always act like Christians? Yeah, because we are human. So some people observe this about the church, uh, that Christians don't always act like Christians, and they write the church off. I just want to say to uh, you here this morning that let's not write the church off as a bunch of losers, a bunch of hypocrites who maybe believe what's right, but too often do what's wrong. It's tempting to do this. Let's not do this. Let me remind you that this problem of, um, of us... Um, maybe believing what's true and yet doing what's not true is not a new problem. This is not a modern church problem. Most of us know that Christians throughout history are responsible either directly or indirectly by their silence for all kinds of wrong. And when we read the Bible, when we read the Bible, we're reminded again and again of how God's people have a long history of believing what's true while living 
falsely. So here we are in the book of James. And we're going to be reminded again the truth of how sometimes Christians believe what's true and yet live in a way that's anything but. So we need God's help, don't we, church? So it's right that we come to him again just in prayer. So would you pray with me? Uh, God, um, it's, it's easy to believe what's right, but it's really hard oftentimes to do what's right. And so help us. Uh, your word, God, is, is helping us. Your spirit is wanting to help us. God, would we be open, open uh, to correction, open to hearing from you and, and learning how we can live more true to you. So God, we're praying for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so for the past couple of months, we've been studying uh, uh, this, uh, this letter written by James. For the past couple of weeks, uh, actually, I mean. Now, James, as some of you know, James is the half-brother of uh, Jesus. And he's addressing um, this letter to Christians who had been persecuted in Jerusalem. And they had to um, uh, flee for their lives, and they're now dispersed in a very wide geographic region. So these, uh, these Christians who had fled uh, had left their homes, they had left their businesses, they had left family, they had left friends, and they left them all in fear for their lives. And they were trying to reestablish themselves in these foreign communities, communities that were foreign to them. And I imagine that most of us would be pretty stressed if that was our situation. I would imagine that that would create some stress and anxiety for most of us. So knowing that uh, people are not usually at their best when stressed, is that true? Yeah, sometimes we can be acting really weird ways when we're stressed in ways that we're later wish that we hadn't. Um, knowing this about the recipients of this letter, it can help us to better understand um, the, the background of the book and the particular struggles that these early Christians were having with their new neighbors and with one another. So if, again, if we can sort of put ourselves in their situation in their shoes, then uh, a chapter like this can help us to maybe better understand things a little better. This book can also help us better understanding how we, who also live with a fair degree of stress, some pretty high, um, it can help us to uh, think about how we can put the teachings of Jesus into practice in very practical ways in our own lives. So put another way, this book can help us, we Christians, actually live more like Christians if we have ears to hear and then the faith to respond. So as Beverly read, uh, Jesus began this chapter with a rhetorical question. James wrote, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What a Christian community. (laughs) Yeah. In the previous chapter that we looked at last week, James introduced two kinds of wisdom. And he was warning his readers um, that it looked like perhaps they were being more influenced by worldly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom rather than God's. With God's wisdom, I think this is one of the points of James, with God's wisdom, relationships are characterized by purity, love, genuine concern for others. It's characterized by humility, by peace, by mercy, and by grace. People empowered by God's wisdom become God's instruments of peace who spread God's righteousness and goodness in the world. But when people choose to rely on their own wisdom, broken relationships and communal chaos ensues. Is that true? Yeah, it's really true. Jesus calls out this chaos in this chapter, in chapter 4. These Christians were fighting and arguing with one another because of envy. And because of selfish ambition. Now, Jesus or James um, didn't literally mean that Christians were murdering one another. At least I hope he wasn't uh, literal there. Instead, he's using a figure of speech to describe the relational effect that their hatred was having on one another. When you hate someone, it's like murder. Their focus was no longer on glorifying God or showing his love to their neighbors. Rather, they had become focused on seeking their own welfare and their own pleasure, a pattern we see over and over in Scripture. When hedonism becomes a person's worldview, it's easy to be blinded to the needs and the concerns of others. And one might even feel hatred toward those whose needs or opinions might threaten one's own comfort and sense of security. Jesus continued to call them out by calling them an adulterous people because they were giving God lip service while in reality their real service was pursuing wealth and pleasure. Just getting caught up with the ways in which everybody else was living their lives. Perhaps James, when he wrote this, was recalling his brother's words, Jesus' words, when he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God The relationships between these early brothers and sisters had become so toxic, we read in this chapter, that if you look at verse 11, it seems like it had become normal for them to speak evil against or to 
slander one another the way that some translations have. To speak evil against another sister or brother or to slander them. So when discussing uh, this chapter with our home group last Tuesday, we, and I was so glad for this, I was so proud. We agreed that it's never right to slander anyone. It's like, yeah, I got an awesome small group. <clears throat> we also agreed that one of the most damaging and damning forms of slander is when someone says something true or false about another person that's meant to hurt or destroy that person's reputation. Can you agree with that? Okay. It's demonic. It's evil. And how often does this happen when the awareness of the person that's without the awareness of the person that's being slandered? Happens all the time, doesn't it? And if they find out, the collateral damage from the false accusations is usually so great that it takes months or years, if ever, for their reputation to be restored. We all know that slander, usually in the form of gossip, is alive and well in the world around us, and it can easily creep into our own lives and into our own communities if we're not careful. Many of us in this room, myself included, have experienced the damaging effect of slander. Our responsibility as Jesus people is to build each other up, not to tear one another down. You and I, with God's help, can help this church and other communities that we're a part of to be known for never speaking ill of another, no matter And even better yet, together we can help our church be a place where people are always cared for, always loved, and always encouraged to grow in their love for God and for others. Doesn't that sound like a fun community? Yeah, sign me up. Oh, I've already signed up. Jesus concluded this chapter by addressing another characteristic Uh, of the chaos that these Christians had grown accustomed to, due again uh, to, by their lack of godly wisdom. And so I'm going to read this final section one more time um, for us. And it's verses uh, 13 to 17. James wrote, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him 
for this sin. Back to our Bible study Tuesday night, we agreed that these passages do not mean that we should stop making plants. On the contrary, we see in verse 15 that James is affirming that it actually is okay to make plans about where you hope to live, what you hope to do, what job you hope to get someday, or who you hope to marry, and you know those kinds of things. It's okay to, to hope and to make plans for even what you would like to see come of these plans. James is saying that's okay. Making plans is fine with the understanding, right, that our plans are subject to the will and authority of God. God, that's it. So we can make plans just knowing that there's in submission to the Lord's will. In fact, God wants us to make plans for our future. We have an example in King David who prayed that God would grant his people the desires of their heart and make all their plans succeed. And then from the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, God's people were instructed to commit to the Lord whatever you do, and he will establish your plans. So planning is good when it's done in view of God's wisdom as opposed to being guided by ambition, pride, greed, just doing what everybody else is doing. Tuesday night, one of our group members said that the problem within many churches like ours is that many Christians easily accept Jesus as, Lord, Jesus as Savior, but ignore him as Lord. Oh, some of you agree with this very wise, sage member of my home group, <laughs> our home group. In other words, we claim all the benefits of Jesus' life, and death, and resurrection without putting his teachings into practice. Christianity then becomes more about mentally affirming a set of beliefs. Yep, I believe that, so I'm a Christian. Or... Maybe just observing certain Christian traditions and ignoring the other ones. Yep, I go to church on Easter. I love Christmas. Stay away from Halloween. I'm a good Christian. Or for some, perhaps, aligning themselves with what they believe to be the correct Christian political party. Of course I'm a Christian. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. I'm an independent, so of course I'm a Christian. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So we get all confused about what it really means to be a Christian in our society. What it means to be a Christian is to actually live our lives fully surrendered to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. James began his letter by identifying himself. This goes way back. To our first week, he identified himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The term servant refers to one who fully places themselves under the authority of another. 
Jesus, James, had given himself fully in submission to Jesus. By ascribing to Jesus the title Lord, James acknowledged that Jesus had absolute authority over all things, including his own life, right? And the title Christ was used to identify Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, who would deliver both the Jews and, good news, the Gentiles from their sin and shame. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. When I became a Christian in my late, my late teens, my focus early on was all about me trying to get free from sin. Because I had a lot of it. And I was just so eager to get rid of all the sin in my life. One of the first sins that I knew that I had to get rid of, and my mother sure knew this, was my filthy language. I had to get rid of my filthy language. I'll never forget, I was helping my dad or my yeah, uh, build a dark room in the basement. I've shared this story another time. And uh, I was using a hammer with tremendous skill. I was up high and I was hitting a nail, uh, hit the thumb or finger or whatever. Hurt so badly, I threw my hand back. I lost my balance on the ladder and I fell. And on the way down, I hit the counter that my dad and I had just built. And my whole body just landed flat on the concrete floor of the basement. It hurt real bad. And I cried out, oh, yeah, praise God. <laughs> Seriously, it's exactly what happened. And there on the floor of my basement, I was like, it's happening. God is transforming me, and I couldn't have been happier. It was an amazing moment. True story. But over time, my focus shifted from being a Christian, focused just on trying to get free of sin, to actually wanting to follow Jesus, who set me free to love God with my own heart, my mind, my soul, and strength. And then to love others as much as myself. The more I grew in love for God and others, the less I wanted to sin. Anybody say amen to that? Yeah, that's the way to do it. Years ago, I was introduced to a, a series um, of diagrams that helped me better understand what it means for me and for us to grow in this kind of love. And it was really helpful. I have shared this diagram or series of diagrams uh, count, countless times on napkins in the college centers and coffee shops and and I think maybe with some of you so uh, I've got it I don't have a napkin I think I have it up here so we're going to begin with uh, this it's very helpful this is Paul writing to uh, a church in Galatia um, it's found in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ Paul is saying it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave myself for me. Now, before we go to the next slide, I want to just point out there's some weird stuff there in that parenthesis. So I 
is, uh, of course, this was written in Greek, and uh, that is a, uh, the Greek word is ego. Like, let go my ego? No, it's not that. It's ego. And, and it's from the word that we get, yeah, ego, right. So I, or ego, who live, but it Christ. So it's not ego. It's not my ego who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Okay. So that's Galatians. That's the um, ESV authorized translation of um, Galatians 2.20. Let's go to the next slide. Okay, now, before Christ, what we have is uh, this is representing ego right here. And this is this cool little shaker chair is really a throne. Imagine that a king would sit on. And, uh, so, and this is a person's life right here. And so before Christ, I think many of us would agree, um, for the most part, the ego is on the throne, calling the shots, ruling and reigning, my life. And this is representing Christ outside because the person's not yet a follower of Christ. And uh, if they were to try to paraphrase Galatians 2.20, they might say, well, I don't believe Christ was crucified for me. Yeah, exactly. I don't think so. So I'm going to just keep on living my life the way I want to. That might be a paraphrase of Galatians 2.20. I don't know. All right, before Christ. Uh, let's go to the next slide. There's a little bit of a progression. Okay, so young in Christ. Great. So uh, ego is still on the throne. They're young. and But they've accepted Jesus Christ into their life. And they, uh, they're now getting some clarity on Galatians 2.20. And so they're going to say, well, yeah, I believe that Christ was crucified for me. And I also believe I know best how to make decisions for my own life. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. It's a young Christian's perspective. Maybe. Something along those lines. Adolescent in Christ. So we are maturing. We're growing up. And so now... Uh, Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's him. There's something, it's like a little battle going on. Paul talks about this in Romans. Battle between the spirit and the flesh, yeah. And so now uh, this person might paraphrase his adolescent. Hey, I believe that Christ is crucified for me. I also believe he wants to help me make better decisions and plans for my life. I just need to listen to him more often. There's tremendous maturity developing in this person. That's really, really good. Okay, what do we got for the next one? Okay, here's a person who is relatively mature in Christ. So now, Jesus Christ is alone on the throne of their life, calling the shots. Yeah? And the ego, now, we don't like become, we don't take on a different personality. If you got a weird sense of humor before you're a Christian, you're probably going to have a weird sense of humor after. You know? Um, but... So the ego stays involved in Christ. It's in submission to Christ now. And so um, I believe that Christ was crucified for me. I also believe that as a Christian, I have been crucified with Christ. There's the turn. There's the turn. I believe that I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. All right, let's, uh, if you can, let's uh, just read this one more time. We'll read it together out loud, if you can. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen and amen. Thank you. I don't know if the Christians to whom James was writing were young or adolescent Christians, but it's clear that they had some maturing to do, isn't it? Yeah. Just as I did and just as I suspect some of us in this room do. Their lives and communities were in chaos because they were putting their trust in their own ideas of what was right and who was wrong. It makes me curious. Could it be that some of the chaos in our own lives is affecting some of our relationships? Because we've given something or someone other than God greater influence in our lives. Just curious about that. If Jesus is Savior, is he also Lord? Those are questions that we have to consider. Do our commitments, our hobbies, our relationships, our finances, our recreational choices, our work ethic, and our plans, does it, do, do these things back up our commitment to the Lord Jesus? Imagine a world filled with Christians living like Christians. Imagine a world of Christians living like Jesus. And this is why we pray, and many of us pray this every day. God, no, 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 not my will, but yours be done. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in my life on this planet as it is in heaven. Uh, I'm going to invite Marion. There you are. <laughs> Those are the circles I was referring to. Yeah, you got it. I'm going to invite Aaron to play some music because uh, I just think it's really powerful when we have a moment of silence just to sit in the presence of God and just let him say anything he wants to us. I always think that's a good idea when we're gathered. Just to tune out everything else and just try to listen to what God has to say to you in response to his word. So I would just invite you to ask God to help you to have an honest and accurate assessment of kind of where you're at with respect to Jesus and living like Jesus obeying Jesus. Invite the Holy Spirit to show you how he might want you to grow in your love for and obedience to God through practicing the teachings of Jesus. Some of you may actually want his help to become a Christian. I believe that God has something for everyone here if only we would have the ears to hear. I want us to be quiet together, to take this time to listen to God and to respond accordingly. This is meant to be a gift that you receive just to be alone with Jesus right now. James uh, finished this chapter with this. 
so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Okay, you're in the right track. If God has shown you the next step that you are to take in growing in your love for and obedience to God, church, take it. I would encourage you to consider sharing your next step with a friend who their the right response would be, I'd like to pray with you about that. New Hope's vision is to be a community growing together toward maturity in Christ. We need God's help. And we need the support of one another if we're going to continue to grow. Isn't that true? Yeah, me too. If your next step was to ask for God's help to become a Christian, um, we're going to do one more song, and I'm just going to be over here. So... If you would like to give your life to Christ or would like to understand what that implies, what that involves, I'd love to uh, talk with you and pray with you uh, during the closing song. So you can just come down and meet me over here in the corner. Uh, that'd be awesome. When I became a Christian, I was so thankful for the people who made sense of what had just happened in my life. I had so many questions and I needed my questions answered and they patiently listened to me and answered my question and uh, that was incredibly helpful so I want to make myself available to that to you if you'd rather not come down alone uh, come with a friend who brought you or grab somebody and uh, come on down with you and, and uh, we'll pray so um, I'd like to close our time in a word of prayer uh, invite the worship team to come on up and we'll do a benediction and then um and then there'll be a time where we can pray for all the needs that are here represented in the name of Jesus. Um, because we all need God's help. Amen? Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray. Amen? Amen. God, we are so thankful for what you have done um, in this small little church. Uh, in northern New York. Uh, God, thank you for the love that is here. God, thank you for the, the forgiveness that gets extended. Um, Father, for the grace and the mercy that is shown. God, thank you for the acts of kindness that are demonstrated day in and day out, week after week. Um, most of those acts of kindness go unnoticed. God, thank you. Uh, for all that you have done in protecting and preserving us as a church. We don't take it for granted. We know, God, that there's an enemy wanting to destroy us and distract us and tempt us and, and teach us, um, show us another way of doing church that is going to be awful. So, God, we want to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We're thankful that you are the one who's building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, thank you that you are for us. You're not against us. God, thank you that there's nothing that can separate us from your love. God, thank you that you, who has begun the good work, will complete it in us in the, in the day of Jesus Christ. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you, God, for your word, which you continue to use, your word, God, to correct us, to teach us, to reprove us. God, to prepare us for this life and for the next. 
love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.